Good morning. I'm wearing a medal. Try to say the obvious in case you can't tell. I was, uh, it's, it's Father's Day, and uh, it was, I don't know, 6.37 this morning. I was in my bathroom, you know, like you would do in the morning with a towel around me, and I was shaving. And I turn around, and my entire family is standing behind me with a card that they have been waiting for me to open, I think, for like two years. Everybody, open it now. I'm like, could, I, I just want to just, okay. I know now I don't push on that. So um, I, I, I opened it, and, and I needed to wear it immediately, and they said, push the button. And so I pushed I push the button. Now, if you're from the 80s, that's the Karate Kid theme of you're the best around. So I said, all right, I will wear it. You got to wear it today. You got to wear it. I'm like, okay, I'll wear it. Tell Bryant to hit that just for me. Um, why is this important? This is what I, I learned from this, not to take myself too seriously. When I put too much on me, on myself, and I forget that God is in charge and that he's building his church, I just need to wear the medal and hit that button and be reminded of God's goodness and his grace and his good gifts, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're in the book of James. And it's a little bit of a different book than most of the New Testament books. Um, it's kind of like wisdom literature, right? It's, it's got content and structure similar to Proverbs. So it's written in the same way, and you've got pithy sayings, and you're, you're, you're going to talk about this for a minute, and then you talk about something different, and there's a punchline, and then you move straight into something else. And so it's a little bit different. Um, it also reverberates. It is full of, replete with the Sermon on the Mount. It's all through there. We know that James was Jesus' little brother. And so he is very familiar with his teaching, and he had been around him since they were little boys, right? And so we, we just hear that. It just comes through, and I, the more I read it, the more I see that. And so today, last week, we, we kind of looked at trials that are, are meant to purify our faith, to mature us into holiness. And today we move into the nature of temptation. What is, what is it like, right? Every, every trial has a temptation that comes with it. And so our vision here at Summit, the, the vision that God has given us, the vision that he's given his church in general and, and, and universal, is to spread the glory and the kingdom of God from the neighborhood to the nations, right? We do that by making disciples that make disciples. That's, and so we say that a lot. And so if we are to do that, if we're to do that, this church must be a safe place to confess uh, to be real, a place where people feel included and loved. Because Jesus said, you know, the world's going to know that you're my disciples, by the way, by the love that you have for one another. And so being a safe place to share our, our brokenness, our trials, our difficulties, our temptations, our burdens, so that we, 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 are to, we should be able to be a safe place to be real, so that we are changed, we're transformed into the image of Jesus. And so that we're chasing after holiness together. It's not enough to just be real. We have to take it a step further. And the reason we can do that and we should do that and we should have a place to do that is so that we can be more like Jesus so that the world can see how we love one another, how we come together, how we're not like the world because of Christ. And therefore, he gets glory and we get joy. That, that's how that is supposed to move. And so he, James says, understanding how temptations works, where it comes from, is inherently linked to the greater picture of the advancement of the kingdom. And so we, we look at the micro today so that it affects the macro. He says, you must understand how this works if you're going to love each other well. 
so that you don't have to fake anything, so that you realize you're, you're, you're zero, ground zero at the cross. Nobody is above or below anybody because of the definition of the image of God. And we'll get into that later, and he gets into specifics. And so let's see what the Word of God has for us today. Here are our three points. Number one, who do you blame? That's what he looks at first. And so that's verses 12 through 15. Number two, who do you believe? And then finally, the importance of spiritual birth. How does that, how does that make us different? How, how, are we, how do we have hope in the gospel when things get bad like that? Who do you blame? Who do you believe? And the importance of spiritual birth. So let me ask you a question. If you're writing that down, if you're just hanging out, here's a, here's a good question. Why do you sin? You weren't made originally to sin. We were made to worship God. We don't question that we sin, but do you know why? James says, because you love it. He says, because you want to. There's something that we want more. Start at verse 12. We'll dive into that. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So we're on a journey. You and I, we're on a journey as Christians toward the crown of life, right? And every time a trial comes up, and it's often impossible to tell whether, whether trouble in a given situation comes directly from God or not. You know, it may be the result of our sin. It may be the result of somebody else's sin toward us. It may be that, that it's the enemy uh, or in a sinfully broken world. We don't know. But the good news is our response should still be the same regardless of what the cause is, right? And so we trust, we depend on the goodness of God, our Father. But when a trial comes up, when there's a difficulty that presents itself, trouble comes in, we, you and I, will either move closer to the crown of life or closer to danger, moving away towards sin and death, is what James says. So there's a fork when a test comes up, when a trial comes up. That's the comparison we get from James, verse 12 and verse 15, life and death. Reconciliation to God versus separation for God. I'm not talking about your salvation. I'm talking about your, whole, your sanctification, how you're moving and becoming more like Jesus. And so the teaching here in this chapter is that God tests us but never tempts us. Right? He tests us, but he doesn't ever tempt us. God will give us a test, which is a circumstance outside of us, but if that test leads us to sin, it's not God who's tempting us. That's what James is saying. It's a test. The test is from God, but the temptation is from inside. That's important because the Greek word for trial that we see in verse 2 and, and, and the word for temptation in verse 13 and verse 14, it's the same Greek word, right? Uh, if, if, you knew, if you knew that or not, it's the same Greek word. The translators use trial and temptation as different words in the English because they understand it's got a different usage. So like Joey explained a couple of weeks ago, words always have usage. They don't always have meaning. They may be used a different way right, and understood in a different way, even though it's the same word. And so what James is doing here, is, uh, and the translators are doing, they're trying to show you the difference in the fact that every trial has a temptation in it, but the temptation isn't from God. He says that's from within. And you need to know that distinction. I'm going to try to make that clear, because that could be confusing. James wants his readers to be clear, because they're blaming their sin and their temptation on God in verse 13. Because he says, hey, don't say... God is tempting me. 
I'm being tempted by God. He doesn't say that you are. He says you're not. And so he's addressing what's going on there. So the test and the temptation are linked, though. That's the context in verses 9 through 11. If you back up, you look in your Bible, and we're going to cover this more in detail later. But the the idea is that 1 through 8 starts talking about trials and tests, and 9 through 11 is kind of really a specific one, right? Poverty is a trial that these Christians are going through. It's a trial. And it has a temptation attached to it for those that are in poverty to be jealous and envious of those who are wealthy. God is not the cause of jealousy or envy. Same thing with being wealthy. Well, being wealthy, believe it or not, is a trial. Jesus talks about it a lot. It's full, it has temptation of arrogance and condescension. But God is not the one causing pride. So anytime you experience a change in your situation in life, whether it's good or whether it's bad, every success or every failure, it's a trial that either pushes you toward the crown of life or away, toward holiness like Jesus or toward sinfulness. If you lose your job, if you lose the relationship that you need, right, or, or if you gain a job or if you gain a relationship, your change is a trial that has an opportunity for spiritual growth or spiritual danger. So let's start with some definitions that maybe will help clear this up a little bit. And I found them them very helpful. Because we cannot confuse the instance of the test with the cause of the test. Right? With the cause of what happens or the results, actually. Right? So we can't confuse the instance or the moment or the occasion with the cause. The trial, the test, doesn't make you sin. So I want you to get that. Let's, let's, let's use an example um, that you're in fourth grade and you're in geography class, right? So if you're in fourth grade and, and you have a geography test and you're, you were told to study, you were given the material and the books and the maps a couple of weeks ago and, and, and either you forgot to study or you didn't bother with it or you thought you had it under your belt and you were fine and you walk into the classroom and the teacher hands a test to you to see what you know, the test is the instance, the moment, the occasion, that's the test is the test, so keep it easy, right? <laughs> it's the test. The purpose of the test is to see what's in your mind and your heart. But when you don't pass, the test is not to blame. It's not the cause of failure. That's the principle. Now, if you're in fourth grade, you could easily confuse the instance of the test with the cause of failure. You can say to yourself, well, that mean teacher, if she hadn't given me or if he hadn't given me that test, then I wouldn't have failed it. And you can blame the teacher, and you would feel self-justified, and you would learn nothing. And the instance of the test is not the cause of failure. It's just the time where it happened. Right? It's the lack of study is the cause. So James is saying, nobody, no one causes you to sin. You want to. You may say you don't want to, I don't want to look at porn, or I don't want to talk about her behind anyone's back anymore, but when you do, it means that that's what you most want. You freely choose that. You can blame no one else, especially not God. Verse 13, he's he's saying, it's very clear, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts No one. And so he's pushing back against that. 
that ideology of we're the victim or we're, we're, it's not our fault. The root of our problem is our own evil. And it's hard for us to see that, especially in today's world when we're constantly told how wonderful we are. You're the best, you're this, it's all about you. You know, we, we get that. We don't see it. And the people James were writing to were constantly under persecution at the hands of their fellow Jews, which left them saying, God is tempting me. They were blaming him. We give our lives to, to Jesus, to Christ, and now this persecution happens and we're worse off, just like the children of Israel in the, in the, in the wilderness. And this is no different than Adam and Eve. Right after, you remember in the garden, right after they sinned, and, and, and Adam and, and Eve, you know, handed in the fruit, and they, they ate the fruit. And what is, God comes looking for Adam, and what does Adam say? God's like, hey, where are you? And God's response is, I mean, Adam's response is, uh, it was the woman you gave me, right? And it's just, it's just natural. <laughs> we just pass the buck. We pass the blame. It's not, it's not me. It's her. And what'd she do? It's not me. It's the serpent, you know. <laughs> we just pass it on along. It's never us. It's never us. It's what we do. And James says, no, it's not God. God is good, and he cannot be tempted with evil, and therefore he cannot tempt you with evil. It's not in his character. It is in yours. And he's drawing that out of you like a surgeon removing diseased tissue from your body. Then James explains what happens. This is how it happens, he says. And we, we go on to verse uh, 14. He says, but each person, and he's explaining the essence of sin. This is the negative part. Right? This is before the good news comes in. The essence of sin. He says, but each person, it's not God, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It's what you want. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth Death. During temptation, right? During temptations, we are lured and enticed, seduced, if you will, by our own desire. Some translations say uh, instead of desire, like the ESV does there, it says evil desire, right? And that's not un. That's not incorrect, but I think it could be misleading because it'll get. It may get you to think that it's the desire for evil things. I, want, I have a desire for evil. And it may, it may be, that may be it, but it's not limited to a desire for evil. It's not just about, say, an obvious thing, lying, pornography, over, you know, drink, being drunk, things like that. It's not that it's just evil. It's, he's talking about the desire itself. And the word has actually got epi in it, which means an over-desire, right? You over-desire these things. And that's what he's aiming at. It's the over-desire. The core of sin, the essence of sin, isn't that we want bad things. It's that we want things too badly. You see the difference? It's, that, it's not that you want evil things. It's, it's that you want things too bad, too much. You must have them. They're most important. I'm not going to make it if I don't get this, or I'll not have joy unless I get this and this is clearly where we see that sin is not just breaking the rules. It's not about just, oops, I messed up, my behavior is off. 
Let me fix my behavior and then things will be fine. Or there's a behavior problem, there's a behavior problem. There's, that's, James says, no, that's a result. That is a fruit of your heart. It's what Jesus says. From the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. The heart is where it starts. And it starts in the desire there. And your desires are corrupt. It's not just about breaking the rules or being a good person in front of other people. It's deeper. Our desires are corrupt. Our wanter. Like what, what, what's in us that wants things, our wanter is broken. And we simply want the wrong things very badly. We believe that they will be what we've been looking for and they will solve our problems over God. And so our desire, our over-desire, and our actions come together, James says, and give birth, which is quite a picture, right, to sin. And it's a process, like a pregnancy. It doesn't happen like that. It's how we've kind of the trend of our life. That's what he talked about last week, right? It's not the moment of faith. It's the trend. It's the, the, the trajectory. And sin itself becomes a mom and gives birth to death. Death always follows sin. It started like that in the garden. Paul tells us that in Romans, right? First was sin and then death followed sin. Here it goes again. James, a different author, says the same thing. And death separates, moves us farther from God, first spiritually, then physically. It, and it's a process. And so we've been deceived to believe that our desires, what our heart wants, will lead us to true life. Oh, no, this is it. This is the thing. This is the book I needed to read. This is the relationship I needed. This is the promotion I needed. This is the grade. This is the degree that I needed to get. This is true life. This is thriving. This is flourishing. And James says, no, it will lead to death. Proverbs is so clear that we must guard our hearts because it contains the wellspring of life. Why is that? Because the heart in the Old Testament is not the seat of your emotions. In the Bible, it's not the seat of your emotions. It's the primary motivational structure for why you do what you do. It's what you desire, what drives you. It's where, so what your heart wants, if you think through the lens of Proverbs, what your heart wants, your mind will find reasonable, your emotions will find desirable, and your will will find doable. You'll figure out how to get it done, because that's what you want. It's most beautiful, it's most powerful, it's most what you need. And so when your heart is set on it, the, the Bible says, guard your heart, therefore. It's the wellspring of life. It's where everything flows from. It's not just your emotions. Quick illustration, real life, of how a, a, a test can go to temptation, and the temptation is always kind of there. As, as a pastor, right, we can get empty at times. We can go to bed full of God and wake up in the morning and feel like I don't know where he is. And, and then we live, and, and we, we still have the, you, you still have the same emotions just like you do, and you have to deal with things. And then Sunday, you better be ready to bring the hope. I don't care, take a day off, but you better be ready. Because Sunday's coming, whether you're ready or not, and, and people need hope. They need to believe that God is working, and you need to believe in order that they can believe. And so there's pressure on you to believe. All right, don't feel sorry for me. I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me. Because this is... This is real life in the fact, you can laugh, it's fine. You can laugh because this is, why am I using this example? 
Because you do the same thing. You, you just have a different focus on where your occupation goes. There's no less emotion. It's different at times and different you know, pulls and, and moves. I, I get that. But what can I do? All right, if, if, the, if the test is going if, if to purify me and I'm going to run to the crown of life, I go this way. And if I give in to temptation, I can go this way. I can move towards sin and death. What does that look like for me? Okay, here, here's the temptation I will deal with, just to be honest with you, and see if this is anything real. Okay, I can either be honest, and then there's a group of guys that I pray with uh, on Sunday mornings, and just, just before I go and say, you know, this has been a tough week or, or during the week or, or Monday or Tuesday or, or when I talk with my wife, I'm like, I'm just going to be honest. I just feel empty. And I know I shouldn't and I don't want to. And I know the gospel is real, but I don't, I'm, not, I'm not living. It doesn't seem real to me. I'm like, I look in the mirror and then I walk away and I forget. And so either I can fight and pray my heart hot. God, would you please do something? I'm here again. <laughs> I am empty again, and, and, and I know that you said you're, you're a spring of living water, and then when we taste, and that means to continuous, actively, present, constantly come to you to drink. And so I'm here again, and I'm worn out, and I'm not believing in this area again, and I need you to remind me that you've got this. You're building your church. You're going to take care of me. You love me. I need to hear that, and so I can pray that way. And from that, the, the, the impurities come to the, the surface and the Lord scrapes it off. Amen. Or I can do what I'm tempted to do and I've done before and then walk through repentance. But you say, I'm just going to have to fake it. I'm going to have to pretend that I believe this. I'm going to have to do in my head what I know should be happening in my heart because I don't feel safe and I don't feel like it can be real. They won't understand and I'll figure out everybody because I can be cynical like that, and I'll figure out what you can and can't handle. And then I'll proceed to do in my own strength what only the Lord can really do. And if I'm not careful, I'll become a hypocrite. Meaning well. And I'll become a person that can act like a Christian without actually living like a Christian. Does that, does that make, do you see the distinction? It's, it's nuanced. Because if you just saw my actions and I was very charismatic, which I'm not, and I was a very good speaker and, and I was, you were like, oh, he's a great communicator and I'm really into that, I could trick you. And I wouldn't even want to, but I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to make it. You see how the deceitfulness of sin can even get under normal stuff? We're not talking about outlandish sins that we just look at and go, oh, that's wrong. We're talking about life. This has got to be a safe place. And we're all in trouble. And that's why I said what I said. Because I, I don't want a hard heart. I don't want to be spiritually dead preaching to people. I can't. And it'll kill you. And it's not on me. I mean, Jesus is building his church. I'm just saying we can all do that. That's what I'm saying. Number two. Wow, that took too long. Okay, um, who do you believe? So, so James is saying, to say that God is tempting you is to think that God is not good. All right, that's what he's saying. And, and it, that's because he backs it up and he goes into God is good right after that. He said, to, to say that, that God is testing you is to say, God's not good. He's out to get you. He's trying to make you fall. He, he is waiting for you to blow it. 
That's not what, what God is doing. And so he's pushing back in verse 17. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift, every good gift and every perfect gift, even the process of giving, he says, it's from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or no shadow due to change. So don't be deceived. Don't think like that. Don't do it. It, don't, you can't think like that. You've got to turn your heart over to him. Do not blame God. Don't blame your circumstances. Look at where it is and don't wallow in that, but turn to him. He gives good gifts. He's a good father, right? And then he goes into this interesting phrase. It's the father of lights. It's a reference back to Genesis. I was like, what is, why, why is James the only person that says father of lights? What is this lights business? I don't understand. And the first thing that God ever created was light, Right? It is light. It's, it's t- saying, look back at what God did. Because these are Jews that have become Christians. They know the stories. They've heard the creation story over and over and over and over and over again. It tells them who they are and why they're here and where, who God is and how he is good and what he has like, sustained them from. It says, this, remember these stories your parents told. That God's goodness is displayed. It is evident in his gifts of the sun and the moon and the stars and creation itself. Look at it. And his goodness is like the light that he created. It's constant. It's never changing. It's the same every day, just like the sun. He's immutable is is the big theological word, right? He does not change unlike us. In us, there is light and there is shadow. You're a very sensitive person like me. Oh, you're very sensitive. That's great, man. You can really be compassionate and you can feel it when other people are are hurting and you just kind of jump in there and they really love you when you meet them where they are. The dark side of that is I'm really sensitive so I can manipulate you because I know how you work. Or I'm really sensitive so I get hurt real easy so I can keep you on eggshells and I can make you wonder if you've hurt me so that I control you. That's light and dark. That's in us. That's not in him. Maybe you're very confident. So, and the light side of confidence is, oh, you're a great leader. You're stable. You're going to be there. You're going to charge the hill. You're going to go ahead. Everybody can get behind you and you can take them on your shoulders because you're confident in what you know in your head and your heart. God has chosen you. You go. The, The dark side of that, the dark side is arrogance and using people instead of loving them. You see, you see how we have light and dark in us because of the way we're made. God gives us certain personalities and certain gifts and abilities and talents and there's light and shadow. And we should constantly need to be putting them in front of the light so that they're used for God and not for us. And James says, so who are, you, who are you listening to, the father of lights or the father of lies? Are, are you listening to the author of the crown of life or the over-desires that lead to death? And can you tell the difference? And so James says, ask for wisdom. That, this is all in one section, 1 through 18. Right? I just can't do it all at one time. Ask for that kind of wisdom. It's not just for how wisdom to pass a test. This is for wisdom on how to live and give glory to God. Temptation is an opportunity not just to fail, but to trust God. And so we ask for wisdom. God is saving us for so much more and so much greater things than the sin that we just keep loving the wrong things and we keep believing maybe this time will be different. This job, this relationship, maybe this new church, this new group of friends. And the one constant in all of our failure is us. James is saying you are ultimately responsible for your sin. Not where you were born, not the situation you're in, not the money you have or don't have, not the friends that are around you, Sin is what you most want. 
and it leads to death if not acted upon by an outside force. Why can't we change? Why can't we be different? Why do we keep treating people the way that we do? Why do we constantly blame other people and even to the point that we don't even recognize we're doing it? Point three, the importance of spiritual birth. This is your hope. If you're a Christian, you are not at the mercy of your over-desire. You may feel like you are. James says you're not. Temptation is not your master, and death is not inevitable. Change is possible. You, you can change. You can be different. I think I heard all my life, people don't change. I'm like, they, they can. I've seen it. And so James, what he does is he steps back from this macro view of God's goodness with creation and the sun and the moon and the stars, and in verse 18, he moves into a micro view. Because it's not just about his transcendence, it's about his eminence. It's not just that he's over everything and you're like a little bug to him. He's also right here with you. And it's very personal, simultaneously. Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so to further drive home the point of, of God's goodness, we see this as personal, that we are brought forth. You know what that means? Birthed. Right? It's, it's the same, he's drawing a, a contrast or par, and he's paralleling the idea of over-desire that gives birth to sin, that gives birth to death with God through the word of truth that's implanted, which we read in verse 21 later, but right here, the, the word of truth that's in us gives birth to something different. Those are the paths. We're brought forth and Instead of our over-desire that gives birth to sin, that gives birth to death, it's God's desire or God's will that gives birth through the word of truth to spiritual life. That's salvation. You are not what you once were. You once were children of wrath. You were enemies of God. You were seeking your own way. You were following your own path. You were totally free to sin any way you wanted to. And it left you miserable, broken, and in a pit. And what he's saying now is that you have been born and translated into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. You have a new heart that is able to respond and actually follow through the power of the Spirit. Now, you can follow life, true life, not getting some stuff, getting a bank account, finding a relationship. That's still fixing outside stuff, and you'll be just as broken on the inside, except you'll be tricked a little bit longer. He's saying, no, I'm talking about True life, abundant living, Jesus calls it. Like flourishing, thriving, not controlled by your circumstances, whether they're good or they're bad, so you're up or you're down. You're only as good as your place in life, your lot in life. You're better than your bank account. God brings life, sin brings death. That's what he's saying, if we really want to boil it down. And we are a kind of first fruits of his new creation. And so here's the other parallel. First creation, father of lights, new creation. 
He's brought you forth your first fruits of his creation. Instead of evil things brought about by over-desire, God gives a good and perfect gift that leads to true life. So this way of holiness, this way of true life, it's not to not sin. That's why I grew up trying to be holy, and so I spent all my time trying not to sin. I better not do that. I can't do that. I don't need to go with those people. I don't need to go over here. I don't need to do that. And you know what? Some of that's probably got a lot of wisdom in it. And so I'm not saying don't do that, but it's incomplete. It's limited. True life is not not sinning. It's just not. And we reduce Christianity to a bunch of knots sometimes. Well, a lot of the time. And God doesn't see it like that. He doesn't see sin as simply breaking the rules. He sees it like in the Old Testament when he said, I'm your husband, and he, and he did a covenant at Sinai, and his people were his bride, and he was the husband. Whenever they would sin against him, it wasn't, oh, they broke the rules. It was, they've had an affair. They've, had, they've committed sexual immorality. That's the way he views sin. And so in our little hearts and our little power, we don't have the power or the ability to control our hearts like that. We can't just say no. I just won't do that. We can do it for a little while. But then the over-desire will take over. And these sins have sway over us because we love them. We sin because we want to, right? And so the, the degree or, or, or the sins that have sway over us only have power over us to the degree that we see them as more desirable, more beautiful, more helpful, or more necessary than God. That's why they're powerful. We want them more. We think they provide more. Whether that's a job, a relationship, gossip, trouble with lying, whatever. What do we do? The way to drop sin, the only way to break the hold of its grip on our hearts When there is a sin that has a grip on your heart, the hold of one desirable object, it's just holding on what you must see is one that is more desirable. There's got to be something that's more than what you have. And your heart will latch onto it. That's the way we're wired. A more beautiful or more powerful or more awe-inspiring one one that promises more than the one that you currently have. I, I'll never forget a, a sermon I read by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. I think John Piper, I remember him quoting him. I went back and read it. And it was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And expulsive means like just, like it just, it just expo- it explodes away. All right? And he's talking about how do you defeat sin? How do you fight sin? Like, hey, I have that problem. I'll read that. You know, <laughs> that sounds like it might have some good information. And what must happen is Jesus must move from the realm of conception to the passion of your heart. How does that happen? Here, here's a real life example. How, how, how we take our hearts that are gripped in one sin, and, and, and when we see something more beautiful, the sin will let go because our hearts will go after something more beautiful, powerful, more desirable, more necessary. And so when I was in college, when I was in high school, I didn't really date. I didn't date anybody in high school. I didn't really date anybody in college. I had a lot of friends that were girls. 
Um, and so we would just kind of hang out in groups and that kind of thing. And then I'm, when I met my wife, Missy, right, there was this new category that was created. Because it's like, yeah, I got, I got friends, I got girls that are, you know, I spend time here and I find, you know, some, some sufficiency here and some satisfaction over here and that's fine. And so Missy's like, new category. This is not hard and this is not difficult. I don't want to go hang out with those girls anymore. I like you. You like me too, you know. Because this could be something, you know. And, and it's not, it's not there's, there's no longer even, even any comparison with anybody else. They're not on the level. Why is that? Because I've seen something more beautiful, more powerful, more desirable, more necessary. I didn't miss those other relationships because I was enamored with my wife. Those other relationships paled in comparison because my heart was enamored with true beauty. That's how sin lets go and has no more power over you as you actually see Jesus. You behold his glory. You stand in his presence. You soak and you're amazed. You have that Isaiah moment. You, you, you long for that. See, holiness is wrapped up in glory, not just not breaking the rules. It's so much bigger than that. We so downplay it. It's born in a relationship with an alive Jesus whose glory is more desirable than gold. It's fully being alive. And seeing the glory of God is the remedy for desiring anything more than God. Beholding something more powerful and more desirable puts your desire for former sins to shame, openly despising them, just like the cross did. And that's why we say every week and we finish with, you, you have to see Jesus. It's not, I'm not going to say the right things. I'm not going to fix that. Your friends aren't. Your books aren't. You must see Jesus. There's an old song, and I'm done, I'm done. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I grew up on that song, and it's just as true as it's always been. So get the worship team to go on and come up here. We're going to collapse our prayer time and our communion time like we did last week. And I'm going to keep saying it until we kind of get a new trend going and I don't have to say it anymore. So um, what we're going to do is have an instrumental playing so that you can pray with those that are around you. You can invite people in to take the Lord's Supper with you. You can stay by yourself if you want to and repent and say, God, I'm not living like that. I'm not loving other people. I'm not owning my sin. I want to turn. I want these temptations to be opportunities to trust you, not, not times where I know I'm just going to fail that there is a hope because I believe in you. I want to see you. You can just pray that. I, I kept going and I didn't mean to, right? And so we're going to have the, the prayer directives on the screen for you just to spend time. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If you want to come by yourself, if you want to come with your spouse or your family or an MC, gather around. This is a time for you to thank God together as a group, to look at each other in the face and the eyes and go, this is the body of Christ and we are taking of the supper together and we're doing it until he returns. Let's thank him. How are we going to thank him this week? Somebody say something. Invite somebody in, somebody you don't know. 
Or if you need to stay, stay. There's freedom in this time. So the band's going to play. Just get up whenever you want to start here or just pray right in your seats for a while and then take the Lord's Supper a little bit later. It's fine. Um, just to tell you the, the Lord's Supper and the reason that we do it every week is that we love it. It's a picture of the gospel, that the bread is a picture of the body of Christ, that the juice is a picture of the blood, that, that there is no other way that you come to God except through Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so with joy, we take this often. And to be reminded that the joy that we have is greater than the joy that the world can supply, that it's not based on anything other than the person of Christ and what he did for us in vindicating God's name and bringing back God's people through faith. And that's available for everybody. If you don't know Jesus, I see Belinda standing in the back. Ladies, if you want somebody to pray with you or if you just wanted to pray for you, I'll be in the back. Dave, I see Joey back there. We would love to pray with you, for you, over you. So let's just take this time to move as a body through here. Take freedom. Let's pray that God would move. Let's do that together.